featuring interesting guests from around the world and calls from across America. And now, here is your host, Rich Valdez. Hi there, what's up? And good evening, America. I am Rich Valdez, Valdez with an S, at Rich Valdez on all of the social media. Happy Monday to you. And welcome, if you want to give us a call, 833-482-5337, 833-4-VALDEZ. And there's no shortage of news on what's going on in the Middle East. And of course, the domestic response to everything that's going on. You've got the squad out there and they're, um, <laughs> they're, they're singing the same song as usual. And we're going to get into that in a second. I also wanted to highlight the fact that the Border Patrol is now confirming that for the second straight year, there's been over 2 million apprehensions. And again, with that 2 million apprehensions means they've caught them and released them, right? It's not to be confused with we've caught them and we've sent them back. This is a shocking number, not to mention the infamous number of what they call gotaways, where people get away. I know we talk about this all the time. We've had a number of people on as guests to explain this, but it's shocking nonetheless, honestly, that this is happening at, at this high of an alarming type of number. Just crazy. Uh, Biden continues to face uh, a push and pull between uh, Democrats that support Israel and those that support uh, Hamas and or the, um, the Palestinian people. And in a little while, we're going to talk to somebody who's making the case that the Palestinian people, uh, by a large majority, voted in Hamas. So it's difficult to say that they're not one and the same at least in terms of their sympathy towards what Hamas stands for. But I won't hold them entirely accountable for that because people could say that about New York, saying, oh, you guys elected AOC, and I can guarantee you not everybody in New York is a communist. Uh, but that is how that works out sometimes. So we'll talk about that as well. Uh, but I want you to hear a clip of audio because there's some audio <clears throat> from our least favorite congresswoman from the Bronx and Queens, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. And before we get to that, I want to get to one of one of her squad members, Representative Ilhan Omar. Now, you remember her. She's the one that famously said, or I should say infamously said, some people did something, right, when talking about um, the terrorists that blew up the World Trade Center and murdered, you know, thousands of Americans. Absolutely just crazy. Uh, that she said that, and I, I've never, it, that doesn't ever wear off for me. I'll never look at her the same way. But she's at a press conference on Friday, and she's lashing out, saying, you know, how many more Palestinians would make you happy if they died? As if this were a contest of how many Palestinians we could kill. And when I think this is appropriately framed as how many more attacks should Israel endure? Because they're really not the same, right? It wasn't as if some people are out there saying, look, there's people, they're squatting, there's settlers, there's this and there's that. They don't let them in. They don't have papers. All, all bad things, if, if you want to believe those things are happening, if those things are happening, they're bad. I understand. Uh, but they don't call for you to go and kill babies. And that stuff is horrific. It's equally as horrific to say, well, you know, this is... Uh, you know, a battle over a humanitarian crisis. No, the, the, humanitarian, <laughs> the humanitarian crisis is the fact that you're killing people, that you're beheading children and setting people on fire and, and abducting elderly people. That's the humanitarian crisis. But uh, Ilhan Omar, congresswoman from Michigan, she's, um, no, Minnesota, excuse me. She's out there. And um, here's what she had to say. Another question. Why don't you want... A question from anyone else? That burned 
torture and killed their babies and children and still have them hostage? Why don't you want the Israelis to go after the terrorists that did that? How many more killings is enough for you? Is it a thousand more? Two thousand more? Three thousand more? How many more Palestinians would make you happy if they died? Do you, you, will you be fine if all of the people of Gaza were gone? Would that make you happy? Would that be the thing that makes you proud? And maybe that's the question you should ask Richie. Is he okay? How many more Palestinian lives is he comfortable with? Because I am not comfortable with any more. Now, of course, uh, Elhan Omar is not talking about Richie me, Richie V, Rich Valdez. No, she's talking about Representative Richie Torres. He's a congressman from New York uh, who is um, not quite a squad member, but a left-leaning uh, politician nonetheless. And here's what he said. You know, every casualty is a tragedy. Uh, every war is a humanitarian crisis. But we have to keep in mind the causes of the war. Israel did not start the war. The war was imposed upon Israel by the barbaric terrorism of Hamas, which butchered 1,400 Israelis, including babies. You know, my colleague, Representative Omar, you know, has voted against uh, Iron Dome, which is a missile defense system that protects Israeli civilians from relentless rocket fire. Were it not for Iron Dome interceptions, there would be far more dead Israelis, far more by orders of magnitude. And so the policy positions that she has taken would have led to even more dead Israelis and more dead Palestinians. So I think Representative Richie Torres, again, he's not a conservative Republican by any means. He's just a normal thinking, breathing human that realizes that's the case. Israel has the firepower to wipe these people out and has never done it. So one must ask the question, why, why are we trying to handcuff the Israelis now in their response to get the hostages out? Of course, that's because of the people like Ilhan Omar and the sway that they carry, because they're amazing rhetoricians. When you have rhetoric like that, where the media asks you a question to Omar, why don't why don't you want uh, why uh, don't you want burned, tortured babies? Uh, why do you want that to end? Why should we have hostages like that? Why don't the want the Israelis to go after terrorists, especially the ones that did that? And her response being, how many more Palestinians do you want dead? What will make you happy? What will make you proud? Clearly, it's A, not an answer to the question. And it's also not legitimate, right? He, he nailed it. They brought them the fight. They're just trying to fight back and get these hostages freed. And uh, I'm not going to sit here and applaud the Palestinians because they decided to do the right thing. Hamas has to be stopped. I'll be right back. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. Well, thank you, Rich, and thank you for everything. I know you very well, and I have I listen, but I have a lot of people that listen, and they love your show, and I appreciate it very much. America at Night with Rich Valdez. How much do you have to the hostages for ceasefire deal? Why did you? All right, America, welcome back, and... As promised, I want to get into a conversation about this, about the hostages, about Iran potentially arming 
uh, Hezbollah and everything else that's going on and the craziness that we're seeing in the Middle East due to Biden's lack of leadership. And to do that, I want to welcome our guest. Uh, you know her as the author of the best-selling book, Rise. Uh, she's uh, the chairman at Act for America. And she's our guest, Brigitte Gabriel. Welcome. I Thank you, Rich. I'm delighted to be with you. Oh, thank you. It's a pleasure to have you on. And I know there's there's few people that really understand this as well as you have, because while there's a ton of um, armchair quarterbacks, right, that know Middle East foreign policy uh, when there's news, you've been doing this for as long as I can remember. And and I'd love to get your take on this. When you hear Biden saying that we'll talk about the hostage first and uh, the ceasefire second, uh, how do you react to that? Well, look, I mean, uh, Biden is someone who is not respected on the world stage, and he is not feared. He is someone who has become so irrelevant that neither the Jordanian king or the Egyptian king or the uh, uh, Abbas, the head of the Palestinian Authority, wanted to meet with him when he went on his trip to Israel. So when you hear Biden talk about hostages and ceasefire, first of all, who is he to tell Israel when and what not to have ceasefire. Israel is an independent country, has to defend itself. Can you imagine, Rich, somebody telling us after 9-11, well, you need to have a ceasefire because, you know, we, we, we do not want a lot of casualties in Afghanistan. Well, we know what Rudy Giuliani told Prince, uh, Prince Bandar bin Talal. Remember Prince Bandar bin Talal offered Rudy Giuliani $10 million immediately after 9-11 to help, you know, with the response. But he told Rudy that we need, America needed to do this and that with the Palestinian cause. And Rudy Giuliani told him, you can take your money and shove it where the sun doesn't shine. <laughs> so, a whole, you know, we didn't accept anybody else's advice. So Biden is trying to chime in on a failed policy in the Middle East that basically he created. He is the one who empowered Iran. And not just while he was president. He began empowering Iran under the Obama administration with the Iran deal. When Obama left office and President Trump reversed all the damage that they have done, as soon as Biden got elected, he reversed all the Trump policies that kept America safe, kept the world at peace, basically was choking the Iranians. The Iranians were on life support, and so were all the organizations they were supporting. And it was Biden that reversed all that. So Biden is directly responsible for what's happening in the Middle East right now. He is dragging us into war. I couldn't agree with you more. I tend to look at this and think that, you know, uh, a lot of this, Iran is, in my opinion, one of those state actors that is always looking to do the wrong thing and will do it if they're able to. And if the international community uh, at large says, you know what, we're, we're going to agree with you and we're going to support sanctions on Iran, we're going to try and keep the, the, the mullahs and the ayatollah in check, we don't want anybody to get the wrong idea and start doing what they like to do, that they tend to play ball and, and it works. But we, we saw with Trump that that kind of worked. Uh, we saw with Biden, now it's not working. They're enriching uranium, I think, now to 65%. And and there's talks of them arming other terrorist groups that they fund anyway. Uh, is that an unfair assessment on my part? Is that me being biased? How do you see the situation? 
Uh, no, you, you, this is a very fair assessment. I mean, we are heading into a time, Rich, that this may drag the whole world into war. I mean, we already see that China now is getting its ships uh, near the Middle East. So when you look at what's happening globally, you look at Hezbollah, for example. Hezbollah is a proxy army of Iran. Hezbollah, by the way, today, 40 years ago, Hezbollah, or, or the preeminent Hezbollah was the Islamic Jihad, the Lebanese version at that time, blew up the marine barracks in Lebanon exactly mm-hmm. 40 years ago today. And we ignored Hezbollah. We, we said, you know, we looked at it as a, pro- a little proxy army. We didn't really understand what Iran was doing. Hezbollah grew to commit terrorist attacks on four continents across the globe. What makes Hezbollah so dangerous right now is Hezbollah has uh, arms from the Chinese, from the North Koreans and from Iran. They have training. They are a full-fledged army with hierarchy and structure and organization and discipline and military training. They have 150,000 missiles directed at Israel right now, spread across 40 towns in southern Lebanon. The danger of that is that once the ground invasion into Gaza begins by the Israeli government, Hezbollah can rain down its rockets on Israel and, and overwhelm the Iron Dome. The Iron Dome can intercept uh, a few missiles at a time, but the Iron Dome cannot intercept thousands of missiles dropping in minutes on Israel. A lot of casualties and a lot of damage is going to occur. Uh, you add to that, Hezbollah has uh, uh, warship missiles uh, where they can hit our ships in the Mediterranean. Hezbollah already released a video last week showing how they you know, the bragging about their warship missiles and technology and how they can attack our ships. Hezbollah has drones mounted with munitions that they can drop, which makes it very different than anything. Hamas become, will become irrelevant when you look at the strength of Hezbollah. And mm-hmm. once Hezbollah gets into the war, America's going to have to be engaged, and that's going to bring Iran into the war, and God knows where we go from there. That's the danger of what we're witnessing in the Middle East. Well, this is a pretty dire situation. And Brigitte Gabriel, I, I, I'd love your opinion on something, because I, oftentimes I, I agree with everything you just said, and it makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, but oftentimes I come across critics that say things like, well, you know, they, they have to be able to reclaim their land. This was their land before it was the Jews' land. And and there's this fundamental age-old debate where uh, there's a lot of people that are now rallying in the streets that are at pro-Hamas rallies. Some are trying to disguise it as being in support of Palestinian people that are innocent. Uh, however, there's there's imagery of, you know, um, these these guns or rockets attached to parachutes uh, that, that are all over social media in support of the attack that, that started this entire uh, invasion of, of Israel. And, and my thinking is that was never appropriate, but there seems to be uh, rhetoric in the media that is trying to kind of soften the blow for people to say, no, that's fair. It's okay for them to go and kill these people because they have no other way of, of getting back at the Israelis. What, what say uh, you? Uh, 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 
which is so irresponsible and so uninformed, Rich. I mean, look, when I watch the demonstrations on the streets right now and I see people mm-hmm. uh, with the Palestinians calling, you know, we want to go back. You know, it's been a 75-year occupation, 75-year occupation. You keep hearing that. Yeah. What most people don't know, and the problem in our societies, in the West in general, is we fail to teach our children history. Not only our own history, they don't even understand history in general. They do not know anything about the rest of the world. When, when, uh, Israel, when Israel captured Gaza and the West Bank in 1967, not in 1948, in 1948 and all the way to 1967, the West Bank was Jordan and Gaza was Egypt. Egyptian flags were flying over Gaza, and Jordanian flags were flying over the West Bank. Jerusalem was in the hands of the Jordanians. Israel did not take the land or occupy the land from the Palestinians. How come the Palestinians were not screaming about occupation when, when, uh, Ga- when uh, Egypt was uh, occupying Gaza and Jordan was occupying the West Bank? It's because those lands were always Egyptian and, and, um, and Jordanians, and they were always called Palestinians. Look, there were even Jews were called Palestinians prior to 1948. When the PLO, when the Palestinian Liberation Organization was founded in 1964, uh, Gaza was in the hand of Egypt, and the West Bank was in the hands of Jordan. The PLO was founded in 1964 not to liberate the occupied territories, because as I just mentioned, it was not occupied territories by Israel at that time. The PLO, the Palestinian Liberation Organization, was launched to eliminate Israel, to wipe Israel off the map. That was their, the reason why they existed. And so today we see all the lies being perpetuated because people do not understand history. But that does not justify the massacring of innocent people, the kidnapping of six-month-old babies. A six-month-old baby is probably still breastfeeding. Uh, Two-year-old little girls, eight-year-old little children, grandmothers. I mean, look at the grandmothers that were released today. An 86-year-old and a 79-year-old. Who kidnaps grandmothers? You want to fight a war? Fight a war man-to-man. Leave the innocent people alone. I agree with that 100%. Folks, we're on with Brigitte Gabriel. Uh, She's an expert in national security, has an understanding of the Middle East like few. And she's the chairman at Act for America. Check them out at actforamerica.org. Straight ahead, I want to talk a little bit about her best-selling book, uh, Rise. And uh, the topic of the book, I think, fits so well with what we're seeing right now. Uh, It's a defense of Judeo-Christian values and freedom. And freedom seems to be under attack. So, folks, don't go anywhere. We're coming right back with Brigitte Gabriel, our guest. And if you want to chime in the conversation, give us a call, 833-482-5337, 833-4-VALDEZ. Don't move a muscle. I'm Rich Valdez, coming right back. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. 
So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. America starts the day with America in the morning. Pending home sales numbers, they tanked in April, but there Hi, are Hi, I'm John Trout, your host for the latest news, politics, entertainment, business, and weather. The octane action in the dust, a new film puts... Our staff of correspondents provide a fast-paced look at the world with specialized reports from where news happens. It's a bird, it's a plane, it's Amazon. Concise, accurate, and fresh each day. America in the Morning, the podcast, available wherever you listen. at night with Rich Valdez. All right, America, we're on with Brigitte Gabriel. Uh, she's the author of the book Rise in Defense of Judeo-Christian Values and Freedom. And as we look at the conflict in the Middle East where you have got Hamas uh, terrorizing the Jews and going after Israel any way they can with hostages now and uh, releasing a couple of hostages, uh, Brigitte Gabriel, let's um, let's get into why this is happening and how your book ties into this so uh, well, in my opinion, uh, your book Rise in Defense of Judeo-Christian Values and Freedom. Well, I wrote Rise in Defense of Judeo-Christian Values and Freedom because watching what's happening in our country and watching the erosion of our freedoms, what, what made America great, what made Western civilization great is the Judeo-Christian values and principles that, that were the foundation of Western civilization. This is why in our country we have a freedom of speech. This is why in our country we say, come, let's reason together. This is why in our country we say, uh, you know, let's agree to disagree or let's debate ideas and may the best idea wins. You know, this is why in our country, you know, you tell little Johnny, oh, Johnny, treat others the way you want to be treated. Even the atheists in our country, Rich, who don't even understand or have never even read the Bible, uh, you know, use this principle, treat others the way you want to be treated. They don't understand where that comes from. And it comes from the Judeo-Christian foundation of our country. And so I wrote the book to educate people about the problems we are dealing with. And at the end of every chapter, no matter what I'm talking about, whether I'm talking about education, whether I'm Mm -hmm. talking about the indoctrination in our schools, whether I'm talking about uh, uh, how the left and uh, the leftist Islamist coalition, how the left and and the Islamists are coming together against America, whether I'm talking about free speech, at the end of every chapter, I have a, 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 a section titled Rise Up and Act, where I give people three things you can do uh, that will make a difference for the country, and you can do them in under 10 minutes. And that's what makes the book very different. And actually, uh, I encourage people, if this message resonates with you, uh, go to our website, actforamerica.org, because as you can tell, I'm all about action, Rich. Actforamerica.org. Actforamerica.org. Sign up to receive our emails and action alerts. Sign up to uh, We Monitor Bills 
on the federal level and the state level to protect the country. And I want you to know that right now we are working on a bill that will be introduced in Congress to stop any Palestinian refugees from coming to America. We have enough terrorists in our country. We have enough people that we don't even know who they are or where they came from in our country that pose a terrorist threat. The last thing we need is to bring a bunch of Palestinian refugees in America who we know the majority of them are terrorist sympathizers. So make sure you take action on that Act Now campaign. We have another Act Now campaign on our website. We want to expel Rashida Tlaib from Congress. Rashida Tlaib is an American congresswoman elected by Americans as an American to serve the interests of the American public. Rashida Tlaib right now has a Palestinian flag in front of her office in our Congress. Where, where does her loyalty lie? Does it lie with Palestine or does it lie with the United States government? If you are a member of Congress, you serve the American people and you serve your country, the United States of America. So we want to expel her and censor her in Congress. We also have another bill that's about to be introduced in Congress where we want to put a cap on the foreign students that are accepted into our universities. When you are watching all these demonstrations on the streets right now, calling for Palestine, you know, the anti-Israel, anti-America demonstrations. The majority of these students, they are foreign students from the Middle East who hate America, who hate Israel, who are here on student visas because our universities can give out tens of thousands of student visas to these foreign students without a cap. That's how they're coming here. They're brainwashing uh, our young American nitwits who don't understand their own history, let alone world politics, who are marching with them. So go to actforamerica.org. Uh, sign up to receive our emails and action alerts. We want to be able to reach you when there's a bill introduced so you can add your name. You can already take action on our Act Now campaigns. You'll see them on the home of the website, Act Now National, Act Now State. We need you to add your name to that. And again, you can get the book uh, on our website for a tax-deductible contribution, or you can get it on Amazon or in any uh, bookstore where fine books are sold. Folks, get the book, Rise uh, in Defense of Judeo-Christian Values by Brigitte Gabriel, and check out the website, actforamerica.org. Now, Brigitte Gabriel, you've got this this uh, piece of legislation that you're you're pushing to get introduced in Congress, um, which I think is is fair, and not just in this situation. I think uh, Rashida Tlaib has been uh, uh, problematic on a number of levels, and uh, a lot of her colleagues have been on this program and elsewhere criticizing her. What do you um, what do you respond to those that are criticizing you and give you pushback, saying? Uh, not all Palestinians are, are terrorists uh, and, and trying to maybe guilt or shame you into having a different position. Well, Palestinians basically are the people who elected Hamas. Remember, Israel left Gaza to Hamas back in 2005. Israel withdrew all their people 
out of Gaza. Israel dug out the dead bodies out of cemeteries and took them with them because they did not know how the Palestinians are going to treat the, 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 the cemeteries and, and, and the tombs of, of dead Israelis are there. They even dug out their dead and took them out. So by the time Israel left Gaza in 2005, there wasn't even a dead Israeli bone alive or dead in Gaza. Israel handed Gaza to the Palestinians. What did the Palestinians do? They elected Hamas immediately. In a major fashion, they elected Hamas. I mean, it was a landslide. They elected Hamas to represent them. Hamas has done nothing except fight Israel and is determined to kill the Jews. The majority of the Palestinians in Gaza, even though they may not strap bombs on their bodies and go in and blow themselves up, even though they are not going to invade and do a massacre like what they just did on October 7th, the majority of Palestinians in Gaza are Hamas. They agree with Hamas, they support Hamas, and they despise the Jews. Look, in war, you have war casualties. Look what we did in Afghanistan. Look what we did in the war with Hiroshima in order to win the war. Now, I'm not saying drop a nuclear bomb on Gaza, but look what, in, in wars, in order for you to win, you're going to have, civilians are going to die. It is so unfortunate. And look, Rich, no one wants to avoid more, more than me. I do not know if you know my background. I'm a Lebanese girl who was born in Lebanon. The war started, I was 10 years old. My 9-11 happened to me in 1975 when radical Islamists, Palestinian radical Islamists, blew up my home, bringing wow. it down, burying me under the I didn't the know that. Brigitte Gabriel, let me interrupt you right here because I want to make sure we have enough time for that story. Because actually, I was going to ask you, how does a nice girl like you get involved in this? <laughs> and uh, you're telling us the story. Folks, we're on with Brigitte Gabriel. We're coming right back with her. She's going to explain to us how she got involved in this and the story of her house being bombed. Don't go anywhere. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. America at Night with Rich Valdez. All right, America, welcome back. We're on with Brigitte Gabriel. She's the chairman of Act Now, actforamerica.org is their website. Uh, she's the author of the book Rise, and she's explaining to us how she got involved in uh, national security activism as a small girl in Lebanon. Brigitte, welcome back. Thank you, Rich. Thank you. Yes, you know, people ask me all the time, where does your passion come from? And I tell them, in order for you to understand where my passion comes from, you have to understand my background. My 9-11 happened to me in 1975 when radical Islamists blew up my home, bringing it down, burying me under the rubble wounded. I ended up in a hospital for two and a half months. And as I laid in a hospital bed going from one surgery to another, I would ask my my father, my parents, why did they do this to us? And my parents would tell me they hate us because they consider us infidels and they want to kill us. So I learned that I am wanted dead simply because, at the age of 10 years old, simply because I was born into the Christian faith and lived in a Christian town. I ended up leaving the hospital and coming back home, but my home was no longer the home I left. 
I ended up living underground in an 8 by 10 bomb shelter without electricity, without water, and very little food. And that's where I lived for the next seven years of my life from the age of 10 till the age of 17, robbed of my youth. To get some food, we would crawl out under the bombs and dig out dandelions and different greenery that grew around my bomb shelter because that was the only salads we had to eat. To get some water, we would crawl to a nearby spring in a ditch because we were being shot at by Islamic snipers that surrounded us. And every time we left our bomb shelter to get some water, we would say our last goodbyes because we did not know if we're going to come back alive or dead just to get a drink of water. I remember at the age of 13, three years into the war, I remember one of our militias friends stopped by and he said, Brigitte, I just want you to know we heard a lot of chatter on the radio and we believe we're going to be attacked tonight. And if I don't see you tomorrow, I wish you a merciful death. And he gave me a hug and left. And I remember, Rich, dressing up in my Easter dress, my Sunday best, because I wanted to look pretty when I am slaughtered, knowing that when they come to slaughter me, there would be no one to bury me. And I wanted to look pretty when I'm dead. And I remember sobbing, begging my mother, I don't want to die. I'm only 13 years old. Please do something. And there was nothing my mother could say to me. And we sat in the corner of our bomb shelter, and my father started reading from Psalms, I shall walk into the valley of death and fear no evil, for thou art with me. And my parents said to me, when they come to slaughter us tonight, you just run towards the Israeli border and don't look back. Thank God I did not have to make that difficult decision that night, because that's the night when Israel came in physically into Lebanon and set up artillery bases around our town so to protect us from the Palestinian radical Islamists who were invading our town to slaughter us. And that's how we ended up living until 1982 when Israel invaded Lebanon, and that's how we came out of the bomb shelter and back to rebuilding our lives. My life is detailed in a New York Times bestseller book titled Because They Hate. Because They Hate. It's about the Palestinian-Israeli conflict and my journey from Lebanon to Israel and from Israel to the United States. Book sold over one million copies. I encourage every listener right now, you just heard the tip of the iceberg. Wait until you read the book. If there is one book you buy this year, it's the book Because They Hate, recorded with my voice. You can get it on audio. You can order it on Amazon for a donation. You can make a donation to Act for America, and we will send you the book autographed to you as our gift to you. This way you can help us with the work that we do and help us change the world. Rich, I'm a firm believer that Mm -hmm. every single one of us in life has a destiny. And no matter what challenges we go through, we go through them so we can be instruments of change in this world to make the world a better place. That's why I started ACT for America. Wow. What, what an amazing story, Brigitte Gabriel. Really is. I wasn't aware of that. I've always known you as a foreign policy expert, and you had a lot of passion. I, I didn't know that it came from such a, a tremendous story. How, how did You've you make the leap? you read my book. I will. I will. How did you, again, in a minute or less, how did you get from Israel to the United States to becoming very preeminent in national media talking about these issues? 
uh, I moved to Israel at the age of 20, and I became news anchor for world news in the Middle East. I was the Peter Jennings or the Barbara Walters of the Middle East, most famous young anger in the Middle East, uh, watched by millions, seven million people a night. Um, there, I met an American war correspondent, and I married him, and I came to the United States by marriage in 1989. Wow. And I thought I left all the crazies behind. <laughs> and 9-11 changed all that because by the, nine, by the time 9-11 happened, I was one of the foremost experts on radical Islamic terrorism because I had covered it all my career starting at the age of 20. So while Americans were just learning about al-Qaeda, learning about radical Islam, learning about Osama bin Laden, this has been my profession since I was 20 years old. And that's why I know it, not just as an expert, but also as a survivor, as an eyewitness to terror who lived to tell about it. Right. Your, your profession since 20, your life since 10. Folks, that's Brigitte Gabriel. Check her out at actforamerica.org. Get a copy of each of her books. I encourage that. I'm definitely going to get a copy myself. Brigitte, uh, you are a gentlewoman, a scholar, and a patriot. And I really thank you for being here. I hope you'll come back soon. Oh, thank you, my friend, for having me with you. It's been an honor, and I look forward to returning. Excellent. Amen. Godspeed to you. Folks, there's more to come straight ahead. Don't move a muscle. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. All right, America, welcome back. Quite an impactful story we just heard from Brigitte Gabriel. I'm going to get your reaction to that. Let's hit the phones. We've got calls from Minnesota, calls from New York City, Brooklyn, New York, WFAS. Let's check in with Jimmy. Jimmy, you're on with Rich Valdez. Go right ahead. They have to make a film out of her story, maybe a half hour, maybe 45 minutes. I mean, that was that was a really fascinating story. A couple of points. Uh, Osama bin Laden attacked the Trade Center on 9-11. 9-11 is the birthday of Felix Dzinski, the guy that founded what we know as the KGB. The advisor and mentor to Osama bin Laden was Ayman al-Zawahiri. He was Soviet-trained. Today, the leader of the Palestinians is Mahmoud Assad, trained by the Soviets. I have Soviet publications. It was the Iranian Communist Party who toppled the Shah of Iran. Then they say they lost control to the fascist mullahs. Meanwhile, those mullahs have been proxies of the Soviets ever since. So Iran has proxies in several countries, but Iran is a proxy of the Soviets. The communist students on campus protesting in support of Hamas, some of them are Muslim, some of them are just your ordinary college communists. This is a major thing. Hezbollah blew up the, the barracks and killed the Marines of Lebanon. The Communist Party of Lebanon takes credit for, credit, credit for tracing the Marines out. This is the Soviet hand in the Muslim glove. It's part of the National Liberation Movement, Arab Liberation. It's all in writing in Soviet publications I have. They're not shy about it. Everybody ignores it. The conservative wing of the fake news media helped get us in this mess by denying, ignoring, and covering up the Soviet and communist involvement in worldwide terror and the Muslim terror. Iran, North Korea, Russia, China working together. Their communist parties have been in contact since 1920s. 
I have Soviet publications laying it out in writing, talking about killing those who refused the Soviet uh, advance and stuff like that. People ignore this. This is like a mathematician who doesn't use zeros or doesn't use the plus or minus sign. You can't talk about anything around the world. What's going on in America, hating America in the schools, the transgender subversion, the perversion subversion. It's all part of the communist movement. Communist parties in every country, directed by the Soviet Union, now communist China, they're going to get nukes into Iran and North Korea. That will get them out of the mutual assured destruction. And, you know, that's what we don't need is that World War Three uh, that seems to be at the brink of everything that we're doing. Jimmy, always um, scholarly as usual. Let's quickly go to St. Cloud, Minnesota, KNSI. Check in with John. Go right ahead. Uh, I have one very simple question. Do you think that the election that got Hamas in charge of the Gaza Strip was fair and honest and without intimidation. You know, John, I don't know that I would put those adjectives on most elections. I think there's always a degree of fraud that, that's playing a role in many elections. But I can say I know that the M.O. that they've had was to build schools and build hospitals and try to come across as a, a community partner to gain the trust of the citizens and clearly they use those same hospitals and schools to hide and use people as human shields to do what they do. So I'll leave that there. Folks, we're coming right back. Don't go anywhere. More to come. Immigration up next. Are you into weird, spooky, and strange history? Horrifying History tells you about the side of history that people don't normally talk about. We tell the tales of haunted places, infamous true crimes, unsolved mysteries, the paranormal, and then we look to history to see where the truth actually lies. Want to get spooky with us? Horrifying History, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen. the city that never sleeps 17 miles from madison square garden new york city it's america at night with rich valdez america's favorite late night talk program featuring interesting guests from around the world and calls from across america and now here is your host rich valdez Hi there, good evening, and what's up, America? I am Rich Valdez, Valdez with an S, at Rich Valdez on all of the social media. Welcome to the program. Happy Monday, hour number two. And we just wrapped up a wonderful hour of conversation, and I want to jump into another topic, uh, because as we're on the brink of World War III on this 40th anniversary of the Beirut bombings um, that killed uh, plenty of Americans um, at the hands of Hezbollah, and they're still at it, rearing their ugly heads. Uh, we have other issues domestically that are really gravely affecting the country, uh, not the least of which is Bidenomics and so much more. But this headline, listen to this, 270,000 migrants tried to cross into the United States over the southern border in September, highest number ever. 
Uh, we're now in the second year uh, with with massive, I mean, and I'm talking massive, massive um, apprehensions by the Border Patrol. They're confirming the second straight year of over 2 million appreh- apprehensions, excuse me. And uh, I just got to think, my goodness, when does it slow down? How does it slow down? Why does it slow down? How how are we getting to where we are? And there's a lot. But the uh, New York Post is reporting that more encounters recorded on the United States southern border in 2023 than any other year since the government began collecting records in 1960. September alone broke monthly records on the border with 269,735 apprehensions recorded, according to figures released by U.S. Customs. Scary. Uh, The record had been previously set in December of 2022, which saw 252,315 people try to cross into the U.S. The third highest month recorded was August this year with 232,963. Uh, border officers oversaw 2.4 million encounters in the last fiscal year, according to the federal agency stats, capping the third year in a row of southern border apprehensions numbers that have smashed records from the prior year. More than 2.3 million people tried to enter the U.S. in 2022, while the year before the record was set at 1.7 million. And again, these apprehensions oftentimes um, include the catch and release. Right. Um, it doesn't mean they're going home. It means they're coming to your home, right? Your neighborhood, your neck of the woods. And again, I'm not disparaging anyone other than the government here. The government that is not doing their job, the only job they have, right, really to protect the homeland, and they're not getting it done. So I want to get to the bottom of that uh, because there's, it's not just the government. There are grants that go out. There are others that are involved in this. Uh, and what by others, I mean there's, you know, nonprofit groups, non-governmental organizations that that are involved that they you know they're there to provide uh, humanitarian relief in many ways right and uh, when i worked in state government there was always a grant going out for something and oftentimes i i noticed that sometimes these grants make problems worse they don't really solve a problem make them worse uh, as as an example in um Southern New Jersey, they tried to take a page out of Philadelphia's playbook once, and they said, oh, we're going to have to have a needle exchange because the heroin problem is just getting so severe, and the drug addicts are, are dying because they're, they're transmitting disease through dirty needles. So rather than stop the drug dealers or stop the drug trade or get people off the street, no, they said, no, we need to give them clean needles. <laughs> they were just making a problem worse. And I think we're seeing the same thing at the border with some of the nonprofits that are there, that they're there fulfilling their own mission, trying to do what they believe is right in many cases. But in some cases, they know that they're just collecting the grant money and facilitating whatever it is that the government needs them to. And lamentably, in some cases, it's adding and helping with the smuggling of human beings across the border and relocating them somewhere in the interior of the United States. So I want to get to the bottom of that with our guest, Simon Hankinson. He's a research fellow, senior research fellow uh, at the Border Security and Immigration Center at the Heritage Foundation. Simon Hankinson, welcome. Oh, it's great to be with you. Thank you. My pleasure. And uh, I want to get into this idea that nonprofit organizations, non-governmental organizations or NGOs are actively facilitating the Biden border crisis. Help us understand. 
Well, you, know, you made a good analogy when you started talking about the, the needle exchanges. And uh, if you look at cities out west, particularly in California, you, you've got these kind of the homeless industrial complex, we could call it, where these mm-hmm. NGOs uh, are, are you know, creating these camps that they have to then feed and water and then they have showers and services and people have jobs. And, you know, after a while, it becomes kind of hard for them to solve the problem that they were created to solve, because if they solve the problem, then what are they going to do? You know, they don't have a living anymore. New York right. City, there's, um, you know, we talk about this right to shelter, um, which isn't really a legal right. I mean, it's kind of a long story, but there, there were uh, the Coalition for, for the Homeless and, and I think it's the Legal Aid Society, but two, uh, you know, charitable groups that started this, you know, years and years ago, I think it's at least 20 years ago. Uh, and there's and they're still fighting it now. And and uh, in New York City, you got sixty thousand people in in the homeless shelters who are illegal immigrants. Another sixty thousand who are maybe New Yorkers. Um, and that's that's big business. They're spending ten million dollars a day on housing just the the illegal aliens. Um, they're spending it's like four four to five billion dollars of, of taxpayer money a year. And that's mostly local taxes. That's New York State and, and city taxes because the federal government's only paying right now anyway, uh, you know, a couple hundred million dollars. Um, and, and people make their livings doing that. So if you were to suddenly solve the homeless problem or the immigration problem, uh, some of these, these charities would, would go out of business. Um, and, you know, I think maybe some of them got into it with the right motives uh, way back when. But if you go down to the southern border, and I've been down twice now, which is uh, exactly twice as many times as, as our president, you see <laughs> these, uh, <laughs> these giant tent cities um, and then the, the DHS, you know, they'll, I call it process parole and punt. They'll, they'll take them, take their fingerprints, their photo, get, you know, whatever information they give them, fake name, date of birth, maybe it's real, maybe it's not. And then they bust them straight over to these uh, non-governmental organizations, these, these uh, charities. Some of them some of them are run by, by church groups, uh, Catholic charities, Lutheran charities. Uh, some of them are you know, uh, not religious, but they're just sort of social services charities that have been set up. And uh, and these these guys, you know, they take in an awful lot of money. We're talking billions of dollars in in uh, grant money, and they turn a lot of it into airplane tickets and clothes and food and housing. And you know, in New York City, they're handing out uh, they're giving laundry services and three catered meals a day and, and healthcare. And it's big business. And if you looked uh, and you see the salaries that some of the people running these places get, I'm not saying everybody. There's there's probably you know, lower level people who, and even some volunteers, but the people running these big NGOs, uh, they're not doing so bad. Um, and you'd be, you'd be surprised. You know, Simon Hankinson, I remember uh, last year and then again, a couple of months ago, and I think even at the beginning of this month, I saw some headlines uh, talking about this from one perspective of just busing and uh, the perspective of the article. And I wish I had it in front of me, but it was basically saying that the NGOs are using tax dollars to relocate the migrants are in effect the, the, the second leg of, of the smuggling operation, right. getting them across the border, the cartel handles that. And then it's like the Biden administration yep. takes over from there and, and finishes the job. And I, I realize that I sound like a cynic when I say that, and people might take exception to it, but I really feel like that's actually what's happening. What's your opinion? No, I, you, you are not a cynic. I mean, I'm, I'm about as cynical as you can get. I, I did uh, visa interviews for many years in developing countries. So I've been, I've been lied to a lot. Um, but, but fundamentally, that's what's happening. People uh, are coming to the border, uh, and there's this just giant, I, I call it the, migra- the, the Mallorca's migration machine. 
It's been set up all of the money that's going to the border. So when when President Biden asks for another 14 billion dollars, you know, he's asking for money for Israel and Ukraine and then the border all in a big package. Most of that money is going to bringing people in and not keeping them out, which is the job of DHS. And when they bring them in, they got to get them off the border because that looks bad. You have a bunch of Haitians under a bridge. You have a bunch of people, you know, sleeping on the streets in El Paso. It doesn't look good for the administration. So they want to get them on buses and they want to get them out into New York, Chicago, Philly, you know, wherever they can to kind of spread them around the country. Um, and so you know, people complain about uh, politicians anyway in, in cities like Chicago and New York are complaining about Mayor Abbott. Uh, sorry, uh, Governor Abbott in Texas uh, busting all these people up. He's responsible. They're responsible for uh, no more than 10 percent, not even that. The vast majority are either doing it on their own dime because they have relatives who send the money. But increasingly, they're doing it on your dime uh, and the buses are paid for and the flights are paid for uh, by by taxpayers. I've been at the airport in uh, San Antonio and I've seen guys who probably got off the border, you know, less than a week earlier, clutching their their release papers to tell them to show up in court in you know six months, a year. Um, and, and they're flying wherever they want to go. It's crazy. I've often had um, different either former members of uh, the Customs and Border Patrol or even uh, current members and their union representatives on this show explaining how they've kind of been neutered and are handcuffed at the border. And, you know, jokingly and cynically, I've said, you know, it's gone. you've gone from being a border agent to a travel agent, and they've agreed. And, and I think that's also part of the problem. And I want to get into a little bit more of this and how these NGOs are operating and kind of how the, the whole scam, or I should say scheme, works. Uh, so stick with us. Simon Hankinson from the Heritage Foundation. Folks, your calls and more coming up straight ahead, 833-482-5337. Plus, after the bottom of the hour, we're going to talk about somebody who made a film um, alluding to the idea of uh, an Obama 2024 run, but not Barack Obama, Michelle Obama. We'll do that a little bit later, but we're coming right back with Simon Hankinson. Don't move a muscle. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. America at Night with Rich Valdez. All right, familia, welcome back. Amigos, we're on with Simon Hankinson, Senior Research Fellow on Border Security and Immigration at the Heritage Foundation. And Simon Hankinson, we, we left off talking about uh, how NGOs, nonprofits, uh, and non-governmental organizations are actively facilitating the Biden border, cri- uh, <laughs> the Biden border crisis. That's a mouthful. Um, I want you to continue to kind of help us connect the dots so that people really understand how this is going down. Sure. You know, I actually thought of a, a little story today to kind of illustrate it because it's hard to get your head around. But, you know, a lot of cities have had problems with shoplifting. We've got a, a CVS uh, here in, in D.C. that gets stripped out every every so often. And uh, you, you can deal with shoplifting three different ways. And it's, it's a lot like the border. First way is you prosecute people who shoplift. Right. So with the border, you, you deter people from coming in. And if they get in anyway, you detain them. Uh, you give them the due process and then you deport them. The second way you deal with it is you, you lock up your most valuable things, like your whatever it is people are stealing, the laundry detergent or you know medicine, shampoo. 
Um, and that would be equivalent on the border to the migrant protection protocol. So you, you keep people outside the country while they're, you know, you keep the thing that they most want, which is uh, asylum, which most of them won't qualify for, and you make them go through the process somewhere else. And then it makes few of them want to come because they know that their chances are lower. Uh, what the Biden administration is doing is they're restocking the shelves of all the things people want to steal most. So they're using these uh, these NGOs uh, through federal grants to take people off the border as quickly as possible, give them whatever they need, bus them to wherever they want to go. And then if they could, they would spend a lot more taxpayer money to give them essentially welfare services uh, for, for as long as they need it. So it just creates this giant magnet with more people coming in as they see that the ones that went before have had this fantastic welcome and haven't been uh, kicked back. So they're restocking the shelves with all the stuff that's getting stolen, you know, and they can't do it fast enough. And, and that's what's happening. That's why you see, I, I heard you quote the numbers before, uh, the, the real number is actually 341,000 encounters because you've got to count all the ones that are coming in under these bogus parole programs where right. they're, they're, yeah, they're just as inadmissible as, as anybody else. They don't have a visa um, and they're, they're probably not going to qualify for asylum, but the Biden administration has just decided to let them in anyway. Um, and hope for the best. So 350,000 people, that's like the population of Pittsburgh just in the month of September alone. These are crazy numbers. And again, it, it seems like we never hear any good news. <laughs> Whenever I bring a guest on for immigration, I'm always hoping in the back of my mind that they're going to say, well, good news. This is coming to an end. We're doing better. There's light at the end of the tunnel. And I feel like we don't have that. And then the stories start to to abound. Uh, why are they coming in? Are we changing the, the electorate, are they going to be able to get driver's licenses? Are we going to automatically register people with driver's licenses to vote, bypassing citizenship? What would be the fail-safe to make sure you have citizenship? Because, again, once you have an address in the system, you could say, no, I'm registered, and you could go and vote. I know that's a big fear. Others say that they're trying to add to certain congressional districts so that they can have more people, so they can get uh, more apportionment, they can have um, you know more money, ultimately more power. Um, I think it might be all of the above, but I'm sure there's other reasons. What say you? I, I agree. It's all of the above. Um, and I also think there's a, a really frightening ideological element because this is the first time uh, in my career, 23 years at the State Department, I worked for, I think, two Republicans and three Democrats. But the Democratic presidents, Bill Clinton, even Barack Obama, uh, they believed that they did have a duty to enforce the law. They might have wanted to change it. Maybe they wanted amnesty. They want you know easier immigration or more people from here, more people from there. Uh, but they didn't think they could just throw the the rule book out the window. Um, but in the in this administration, what you have, if you look at the the, the people who are actually running policy, I'm afraid that's not uh, that's not Joe Biden these days. They're they're ideologues. They're committed to open borders. They don't believe they believe everybody has a right to migrate wherever they want to go. And they don't believe you should ever uh, detain somebody or deport them. And so the result is pretty predictable. You know, the word got out and uh, the, the snowball is, is rolling down the hill. And yeah, like you, I, I keep looking for some good news. Um, but I, I just I don't see a, a lot of hope um, in the next year or so. Well, now, people that are listening and saying, hey, this guy knows his stuff, how do they um, keep up to speed with the stuff that you're working on? Well, uh, I write uh, a daily, a weekly column, rather, for the Daily Signal um, at the Heritage Foundation, and uh, my research goes up there, too. I was tweeted out at WatchfulWaiter1. Uh, well, I guess they call it X now, but I'm still calling it Twitter. Yeah, me too. Um, 
know, and uh, I, you know, I just try to keep on on top of the uh, of the numbers and, and the craziness and just try to break it down for people so they understand. Because I honestly think if if most Americans who are out there just too busy trying to keep ahead of inflation and and uh, you know keep a roof above their heads, if they understood what was happening, uh, that, that we've essentially surrendered our national sovereignty. Um, I think they'd be mad. I think they'd be calling up their politicians and saying, you know, this has to stop. We've got to restore the rule of law. Amen to that. Uh, and if you're on X, is there um, anything that you're working on right now that we should keep a watchful eye out for? Watchful waiter? Well, actually, you know, the next thing I'll be I'll be coming out with, uh, and it'll probably be a, a few weeks, is I'm, I'm looking into the the preventable crimes. Uh, because that's something that we always say, but people have a hard time putting a putting a you know a name on it or a place. But you know, every single day I get these reports out of CBP or out of ICE that they've arrested somebody. Um, and you know, look, there's there's crime in any community; it'll happen. We have what a hundred thousand people. There's five murders a year on average. Uh, some places it's higher, some places it's lower. But we we are letting in. Uh, a lot of people who shouldn't be here, recidivist criminals, people who have committed crimes and been deported, serious crimes, back to El Salvador or wherever. We need to make sure that they, they can't, can't get in. Simon Hankinson from the Heritage Foundation. Give him a follow. Check out his work. Simon, thank you, sir. You're a gentleman, a scholar, and a patriot. I appreciate it. Always a pleasure. Anytime. You bet. All right, folks, we will continue our conversation. Is Michelle Obama going to run in 24? One filmmaker says, maybe so, and he's coming up next. Don't go anywhere. America, welcome back. We continue our conversation, and uh, this time it's about the 2024 election and, and a new film that's out there uh, looking into Michelle Obama 2024, her real-life story and her plan for power. That's the name of a documentary film by filmmaker Joel Gilbert, and he's here to tell us about it. Joel Gilbert, welcome, sir. All right. Thanks for having me tonight. My pleasure. Let's uh, let's dig into this. First of all, how would you get into making documentary films? Or have you always been in the film business? I've uh, been, uh, you know, I came out to L.A. Uh, 25 years ago, worked at Paramount Pictures. I was in the finance department, and then I left and started my own film production business. Started making films on uh, music icons like Bob Dylan and Paul McCartney, Elvis Presley, and then I went back to my original field of study, which was politics. And that's why I've been making political documentaries ever since. Cool. Uh, it sounds like a fun thing. I always say, if I ever had to do it again, I'd, I'd like to make films. Seems like it's hard, but it seems like it's also really rewarding and really fun. It's um, both. It's both. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> I bet. Uh, tell us about, about this film, Michelle Obama, 2024, her real life story and plan for power. Okay. Well, it was quite a lot to unwrap here, but, uh, Look, uh, I noticed uh, from following the Obamas for years, I made a film in 2012 called Dreams for My Real Father, where I made the case that the guy that raised Obama in Hawaii, an American communist named Frank Marshall Davis, that that was Obama's real 
biological father. He looks just like him, and Obama looks nothing like the Kenyan student. Uh, so I've been following and making films about Obama for years, and I noticed that when uh, Trump became president, that Michelle started doing exactly everything that Barack had done before he ran for president. She was copying everything he did. Uh, Barack had a voter registration organization in Chicago called Project Vote. Sure enough, Michelle founded a voter registration organization called When We All Vote. She got 26 million bucks from the Soros gang for that group. Uh, Barack wrote two autobiographies, and uh, Dreams for My Father and The Audacity of Hope. Politicians who write uh, you know, autobiographies at a relatively young age uh, are rewriting history and trying to create a narrative. And sure enough, Michelle wrote two autobiographies, Becoming, who's a big international bestseller, and also The Light We Carry. They're both also movies on Netflix as well. And, um, you know, Barack was the keynote speaker who introduced John Kerry at the 2004 Democrat Party convention. Sure enough, Michelle was the keynote speaker that introduced Joe Biden to the 2020 convention. So I saw her doing the exact same things Barack did. And I also knew a lot about her history, uh, and I decided to dig deeper because she's been presenting this case to the public for many years that she suffered from discrimination growing up. She overcame these obstacles. She's from the south side of Chicago. She was held back in life because of her race. And it just seemed so phony the way she told those stories, which I knew a lot weren't true. So I actually went to Chicago, and I talked to three of her boyfriends, her mother, her elementary and high school classmates, teachers, school principal, Princeton University, thesis advisor, you name it. And I learned uh, Michelle's real story, and I present that in the film and book. And it turns out everything Michelle's been telling the public about her life story is completely fabricated. She's not from the south side of Chicago. She's from South Shore, which is an exclusive community on Lake Michigan. Her father was a precinct captain, politician, working for the Democrat Party machine in Chicago, she also grew up in Jesse Jackson's house when he was running for president. She was friends with his daughter, Santita. And pretty interesting, I learned that Michelle had a terrible relationship with the black community growing up. Uh, the black kids would beat her up, tell her she talked white and acted white. Michelle writes in her book about getting in a fist fight with a girl. They called her an Oreo, which is a racial slur. It means you're black on the outside, but you're really white on the inside. And Michelle didn't have any black friends. She refused to go to school at the high school, one block from her house, all black schools, a good school. But she refused to study with other black kids. Her and her brother both went away to a Catholic school and a magnet school to study with white kids. So she had a terrible relationship growing up. And then I found out Michelle pretty much got her revenge on the black community working for the mayor of Chicago. She was the assistant planning commissioner. And Michelle uh, kicked 20,000 black people out of their homes. She knocked down the projects at Cabrini Green and so they could give the land away to these Democrat donor developers. Um, and having proven how callous she was toward black people, Michelle was hired by the University of Chicago Medical Center. They were having a problem with the blacks from the south side were coming in their emergency room. A lot of them didn't have good insurance. So Michelle headed up something called the Southside Health Collaborative, and that's a program where if you were black and showed up in the emergency room, Michelle would put you in these vans and dump you back on the south side. It was called patient dumping. It was illegal. So whenever white liberals had problems with black people, they couldn't hire a white person to exploit them. So they had to hire a black person. So Michelle always took those jobs to exploit the black community. So she had a terrible relationship with black community, and that's why I realized all of Michelle's stories about 
suffering racism and I'm just one of the ordinary black folks are a total lie to manipulate uh, black voters to get power. So that's what my film and my book really reveal the, the true Michelle Obama and just so many things you didn't know. Wow, that's a lot. <clears throat> Deep dive by Joe Gilbert here. Again, the book is Michelle Obama 2024, Her Real Life Story and Plan for Power, uh, filmed by the same name. We're on with a documentary filmmaker and political commentator, Joe Gilbert. And I want to continue this discussion uh, to get a little bit deeper into it as he unpacks the film to us um, straight ahead. Of course, your calls are welcome on the topic. 833-482-5337, 833-4-VALDEZ. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. Call now, 833-4-VALDEZ. That's 833-482-5337. 833-4-VALDEZ. That's Valdez with an S. is night. This is Rich Valdez. All right, we're on with Joe Gilbert. He's a documentary filmmaker. He's got a film out titled Michelle Obama 2024, her real life story and her plan for power. <laughs> Check out the website, michelleobama24.com. Joe Gilbert, uh, there's always people that are critical of those um, in their ascent to power or in their rise to power. Um, and Michelle Obama, Trump, anybody else, uh, I'm sure yourself even, uh, are not immune to that criticism from haters, critics, etc. And there's been a lot of talk about uh, the, the uh, uh, who is the real Michelle Obama. And I think you've uh, uncovered a lot of that on her personal history or professional background and whatnot. I also know that there's a lot of unfounded allegations about uh, a real life name of Michael Robinson and things like that, which I, I write off as, you know, crazy talk. Uh, but what other um, deep, dark secrets have you uncovered in producing this film? Well, uh, most people don't know that Michelle was a community organizer for three years in Chicago, just like Barack. Michelle ran something called Public Allies, which was a far left group. And what they did was they took people that were down and out on their luck, former prisoners, high school dropouts, and they would give them jobs in the bureaucracy in Chicago four days a week for 10 months. And then one day a week they would get socialist indoctrination and radicalization by Michelle and her friends. Wow. Uh, and then after the 10 months was over, they would send these people to go get jobs in the bureaucracy and then work their way up through the years. It's kind of like the definition of the deep state to create this uh, – far-left bureaucracy uh, from the ground up over many years. And guess who Michelle's first guest speaker at her uh, organizing group was none other than Bernadine Dorn. Wow. Now, Bernadine Dorn was one of the heads of the Weather Underground, a domestic terrorist. She's been credibly accused of murdering and bombing a police station in San Francisco and murdering a policeman. Uh, she was the wife of Bill Ayers, who was buddies with, with Barack, but Michelle worked with Bernadine Dorn for two years at the Sidley Austin Law Firm, 
And Barack and Michelle uh, used to go to their house for dinners uh, in the 90s about once a week. So the Obamas are very close to this couple of domestic terrorists. And I tie Michelle's anti-American rhetoric that she had back in 2008. You might remember she was giving very nasty anti-American speeches every night, talking about something called the politics of fear, how we're all afraid of each other and all of our policies come from this fear. That she got directly from Bernadine Dorn. So... Uh, that was her biggest political influence. It's fascinating how, how much Michelle was influenced by this domestic terrorist. Um, also, you know, Michelle was this uh, pretty interesting. She was this big fashionista growing up. She had a celebrity hairdresser from age 18. She went to all the uh, Miracle Mile in Chicago, all the fancy, uh, uh, you know, designing clothes designers like Maria Pinto and Ikram Goldman. And Michelle was on the top 25 best dress list in 2005 when Barack was elected senator. She was on the International Vanity Fair best dress list. And then in 2008, three years later, she shows up to campaign for Barack, and she can't show up dressed as a fashionista and say, hey, I'm another Harvard lawyer just like my husband. She comes and she tries to trick voters by wearing an old sweater. She doesn't comb her hair. She dresses like a homeless person and tries to make the case that she's just this ordinary black housewife, how she imagines a black housewife might dress in the 50s. And it's almost ridiculous when you see how, how ridiculous she would dress and wouldn't even comb her hair and just wear a T-shirt. And then, of course, when, when they were elected president, Michelle went back to being this big, big fashionista. So Michelle also on that 2008 campaign, she would talk to black audiences and she'd put on a phony urban accent. Michelle speaks perfect English. You know, she said her parents made her speak perfect English. She doesn't didn't have an urban accent, but when you speak to a black audience, I mean, if it happened today, they would arrest her for like a hate crime. But she would put on a phony accent. So Michelle is a big manipulator. She uses her fashion, her speech, phony stories about suffering racism, all to manipulate and trick black voters. Uh, one story she's told for years, she talked, even told Gail King uh, on Good Morning America a couple months ago, she said that uh, when she applied to Princeton University from her exclusive magnet school, that the guidance counselor racially profiled her and said, well, you're black, you're applying to Princeton, maybe you're stretching. This is Michelle's story she's been telling for years. Well, I found out her guidance counselor was a church-going black woman who was an assistant principal, so there's no way she racially profiled her. The worst thing she could have said was, Michelle, you know, you got really low test scores for Princeton. You might want to apply to some other backups. We've all heard that. You know, it's about the worst thing that she could have said. But Michelle just lies and tells these fake racial stories to trick and manipulate black voters to get their votes. Folks, we're on with Joe Gilbert, filmmaker and guest investigative journalist and uh, political commentator. He's uh, the uh, director of Michelle Obama 24. And um, and the website again, MichelleObama24.com. Now, right. I, I agree with you that um, there's likely um, a political aspiration here. But I, when I weigh it out and I think, you know, all the money that they're making, all of the ability to, to move around, the Netflix deal, all this cash that's just abounding for them would somewhat dry up because of their public service if she were to end up back in the White House. So I think, A, why do you think she's running? And B, um, do you think she's really running in 24, setting this up for the future? No, I think she's running in 24. 
Look, the Obamas are political animals. They love politics. They love power. They've got all the money and millions they could ever possibly spend in their entire life. Uh, they never left Washington, D.C., even though they have this climate-denying summer home on the beach in Martha's Vineyard with all their other white buddies. They still have a, a home in Washington. They, Barack still consults with members of Congress and his former staff that are now working for Biden. Um, and they, uh, look, Michelle's a better politician than Barack. She's a better speaker. She comes across more authentic. Michelle's father was a politician, precinct captain. As I said, she grew up in Jesse Jackson's house during the years he was running for president. So she's all about politics. She married a politician. She married her father. So Michelle is a highly political person. Just look at her Twitter account. She's pushing voter registration. She's reaching out to minority and women groups. She's uh, making political statements on everything that happens in the news. So it's just who they are. They really are itching to get back in the White House, and I think they have a big opportunity for 2024 because no one wants Joe Biden. Democrats don't want him. The down-ballot Democrats don't want him because they're afraid he'll drag down the ticket. Everyone thinks he's too old. He's got a terrible record in office. Yeah. And Michelle just solves all the problems. She's so personally popular. She's the best-loved Democrat. She's kind of above it all. And uh, she can come in and appeal to nostalgia. Remember how much you loved the Obama years. She can, you know, come in and appeal to all the different minority voters and women's groups. The media can use her to say, hey, if you don't agree with Michelle, you must be racist or sexist. You know, they use race and gender now. So she just checks all the boxes. And um, we've got a December 23rd deadline coming up this year to get your signatures in to appear on all the primary ballots. So I'm predicting sometime in November we're going to see Michelle announce uh, Biden doesn't even have to drop out. He can run all he wants. Uh, no one's going to support him. And Michelle will have plenty of time to get her signatures in and raise all the money she needs. All right. Well, Joe Gilbert, I'm going to, I'm going to hold you to that. I, I hope you're, you're wrong. But if you're not, uh, I'll definitely make a public declaration saying Joe Gilbert was right. Michelle Obama's running. And and I, I do believe there's a way to pull that off. I think there's also uh, the idea of um, of a contested convention where she gets nominated there as well. If that's in fact the case, I think that might be the plan for Gavin Newsom. Do you think that there is a Republican uh, in the field of candidates we have right now that could be successful against a Michelle Obama candidacy? Look, Michelle's immensely popular. It's going to be a big, big challenge. Uh, you know, she also solves the, pl the plausibility problem that Democrats have with all of their ballot stuffers and ballot harvesters. If, uh, you know, if Joe Biden, if they say, hey, on election night, Joe Biden won the election, no one's going to believe it. If Michelle yeah. wins, you'd say, well, I guess I believe that because she's so popular. So she solves that problem. Uh, but um, look, uh, Black voters uh, are needed by the Democrat Party. They need 90 to 95 percent of the black vote to get their people elected. Now, it also happens to be that Donald Trump made so many inroads with the black community by delivering for them what Democrats promised for 60 years and did nothing. He delivered uh, high wages, school choice, prison reform, you name it. And he was gaining a lot of minority support. So that's why you see Democrats mm -hmm. today are appointing African-Americans to so many positions, like U.N. ambassador, uh, defense secretary, press secretary, head of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the uh, 
minority leader in the House, because their message to minority voters is now rather insulting. It's, we look like you, so you should vote for us. That's their thing. And that's why they need Michelle, I think, also to try to trick black voters into thinking the Democrats have their interests when they, when they really don't. Right. But I think Donald Trump can look, black voters are no fools. If Donald Trump comes out and says things and tweets and talks and says, Michelle Obama, are you going to apologize for what you did to the black community in Chicago? Michelle Obama, are you going to apologize to the South Side black community for kicking them out of the emergency room and denying access to health care? These things are going to open a whole can of worms that she's going to have to answer for. And I don't think black voters are going to like it. 100 percent. Joe Gilbert, uh, stick with me. I want to wrap up this conversation and I want to get your thoughts on what's going on internationally. I've seen uh, some of your comments on Hamas. So don't move a muscle. We're coming right back. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. With Rich Valdez. All right, America, we're on with Joe Gilbert, filmmaker and political commentator. And Joe Gilbert, we're down to about 50 seconds, but I want to hear your one sentence on Hamas and what you think of that and let everybody know how they could find you. Oh, look, the, uh, the policy of the Israeli left to give Gaza to the PLO terror group in 2005 is finally completely blown up in their faces. And I'm concerned that the Israelis are ceding their military plan to the United States, who will eventually uh, help Israel to a political defeat, even if they have a military victory. Look, uh, for Michelle Obama 2024, go to SalemNow.com. You can live stream it on Salem Now or Amazon Prime Video. The DVD and book version are on Amazon.com, and you can watch the movie trailer and, and read all about it at michelleobama24.com. You got it. Joe Gilbert, thanks for being our guest tonight. God bless, Godspeed, and folks, Open Phone America coming up right now. I'm Rich Valdez. Live from the city that never sleeps. 17 miles from Madison Square Garden, New York City. It's America at Night with Rich Valdez, America's favorite late-night talk program featuring interesting guests from around the world and calls from across America. And now, here is your host, Rich Valdez. Hi there, good evening, and what's up, America? I am Rich Valdez, Valdez with an S, by the way, at Rich Valdez on all of the social media, your liberty-loving Latino amigo. Happy to be with you this Monday evening. Our telephone number, 833-482-5337, 833-4-VALDEZ is the phone number, and uh, this is our number three, so... You're welcome to call in. We call it Open Phone America, where everybody across America has a chance to call in and discuss whatever's on their mind. Uh, Of course, the topics that we talked about are on the table. If there's something that you want to bring to the table, I'm happy to discuss it. If you disagree, you get to the front of the line. And uh, new callers also, we put them uh, uh, to the front of the line as well. And I'm putting out an APB on my buddy Gil in the Manila, Philippines. I know he had a 
taking some time off, but uh, looking looking to hear back from Gil. I always love his, his insight, as well as uh, all of our regular callers. And I'm going to get to the phones momentarily, <clears throat> but I just want to recap some of the conversation we had tonight. We talked about the potential for World War III, is what they're saying. And of course, that's the media hyperbole that we use all the time. Whenever there's a new uh, armed conflict, it's always the potential for World War III. In reality, it is, right? You've got Iran that's ready to ramp up their uh, their support of Hezbollah and other uh, funding for other groups uh, that are terrorizing the globe. And um, their goal, get rid of the United States, get rid of Israel. I mean, it's their stated goals. This is how they open their sessions of parliament, right? Wishing death to America. That's a real thing. And we'll talk about uh, your reaction to that. We'll also discuss uh, today being the 40th anniversary of the uh, attack on Americans in uh, Beirut, Lebanon, that was um, that was crazy. That was just a crazy thing. And uh, 40 years ago today, and of course, the information war continues. The border m- remains out of control. And we had some discussion about Michelle Obama's potential 2024 uh, candidacy. At least Joe Gilbert, our guest from the last hour, he believes that's going to happen. So uh, we're going to get into all of these topics and more. I want to get to the phones because I know there's a few people that want to weigh in on a few different things that we've discussed tonight. Let us go here to Shields, Michigan, listening online. Kim, go right ahead. Hi, Rich. Thank you. Um, I just want to say, Brigitte Gabriel, that was amazing story she told about hiding in that bunker and, you know, with the terrorists and stuff. She just has such an amazing story. And Joe Gilbert also, he did a lot of research on Michelle Obama. And um, before I forget, I want to say this, and then I want to talk some more about Michelle Obama. But he said that Israel, you know, shouldn't listen to Joe Biden, you know, and I totally agree, agree with that. I think Israel should do what it has to do. And the biggest thing is, is, is getting rid of all those 311 miles of tolls. Cause if they don't, it'll happen again, you know? And so I agree with him on that, but before you ask him about that story about Michelle Obama, so he, you said, so we can put it to rest about her alternative, uh, personality as Michael, because a couple people that I know, one told me they saw a picture of her as a man. And um, they said, look at, look for it on your phone. You know, there was a picture of her as she is. And then when she was a man and I came home and went to look it up. And the only picture I saw of her under is Michelle Obama. Was she a man was her and Obama were at a basketball game and she was cheering and had her arms way up in the air and she had hairy armpits like a man. And, uh, so I thought, I thought, wow, maybe she really was, but I guess now we can all put that to rest that she had a change. Cause if he researched her that far back into elementary school and, and, you know, her family, that couldn't be true. 
Um, yeah, I, I agree with with you, Kim. There, uh, I've I've heard a, a, a dozens of people tell me, "Oh my gosh, that's the same story," and, and I've always written it off. And again, even if it were true, it really wouldn't have much of an impact on anything. Uh, but yeah, I would agree that I think that's just uh, the type of thing, you know, it's kind of like when they say, well, what about the 19 women that Trump raped? Obviously, Trump didn't rape 19 women. And, and, and this is what people tend to do from whatever side. When you're making it to the top, when you make it big, there's always a target on you. And that's just how it is. Believe it or not, as nice as I try to be, people say crazy things about me. I mean, thankfully, nobody's saying that I'm, I'm really a woman. But <laughs> my point is people do make things up and they make fake images and they do all sorts of things. And it's just kind of crazy. And your comment about Brigitte Gabriel and her story, yeah, I agree. That was a fascinating interview, and I, I did not know that about her. It wasn't even in the bio that was submitted as part of the, the show. And uh, I just, you know, we were going to talk about foreign policy and whatnot, and she brought it up, and I thought it was um, a, a really uh, remarkable story of, of how she came up in this world. And it makes a, a lot of sense as to why she's such a passionate advocate as she is. Uh, Kim, I thank you for the call. I appreciate it. Big shout out to everybody in Michigan listening tonight. And uh, let us continue. Let us go to Paul, Boise, Idaho, KBOI. Paul, go right ahead. Thanks for taking my call, Rich. Yes, sir. You know, we've got we've got issues with immigration other than what we've already got here in America. And it it's in regard to the the Gulf War that we're talking about. And oh, Biden's already, he's already hinted towards having us bring home the refugees from the war. And I got to tell you, I don't think that's a good idea. And the reason why I, I say that is not because I'm a, uh, not, not because I'm some kind of bigot or something, but Egypt and also Jordan have refused entry for the Palestinians. Right. You know what? That's an excellent point. Uh, the fact that, you know, people are those that are that are innocent, that don't want anything to do with this war, that would like to leave and uh, evacuate and, and go elsewhere. Um Egypt isn't letting them in, nor is Jordan uh, or any of the other countries really allowing them in. And it, for me, it begs the question, why wouldn't you do that? Um, I don't know the answer to that. And, and I think Brigitte Gabriel probably came closest to helping us understand that, which is uh, I think they don't want the, um, the, the drama. And, and what by the drama, I mean, she, she made the case that Hamas was elected with a with a large plurality, plural, plural, I can't talk, plurality of the vote. And, and as I'm um, struggling to speak, and w with uh, such a, a mandate in their election, the, the inference that one draws from that is that clearly that there's support for that. And if they're terrorists, then these are terrorist sympathizers, uh, at least those that were voting. And again, I understand the inference. I don't know that I agree with it totally. Again, you make the same inference in New York and say, oh, my gosh, you guys, you know, had people like Cuomo and AOC and she's a communist sympathizer. That means everybody in New York is a communist sympathizer. No, not the case. Uh, doesn't even mean it's it's a large number. Uh, I think it, it's limited to a certain district or even uh, the biggest city in the state, but not the entirety of the state. 
So when you when you have those types of uh, inferences that are drawn, I understand where they come from, but I just you know I don't think they're practical and I don't think they're real. Uh, I'm I'm a conservative. Uh, I have been all of my life, and I didn't have a liberal conversion story. And I'm a kid that's born in Brooklyn to Puerto Rican parents that were born in Puerto Rico, and uh, and I live in the suburbs of New Jersey, North Jersey now, Bergen County. So I can tell you that you know I've I've always been on the East Coast and. Blue Jersey is blue. New York City is blue. And uh, I've always been as red as they come. So I I just never really accept that. But I think, uh, based on what you're saying, I think this is part of the reason that Egypt and Jordan and the rest of the neighbors uh, of of, uh, the Palestinians don't want to uh, allow immigration into their country. Because I think, A, they don't want to be complicit in the war. They're kind of like, hey, look, we're hands off. We don't want to be involved here. And B, uh, I think they they may think that, you know, if this is how you guys operated with uh, electing Hamas as a political party, uh, you guys could try the same thing here. And that's not something we're looking to entertain. Uh, That would be what I draw from that. But interesting point, Paul, and I think you raised a really good question. Folks, we're going to continue with your calls and more straight ahead. We've got calls from Ohio, smack dab in the middle of the country. Uh, Canton, Ohio, Cleveland, Ohio, and more coming up. Don't move a muscle. I'm Rich Valdez. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. Call now, 833-4-VALDEZ. That's 833-482-5337. 833-4-VALDEZ. That's Valdez with an S. By the way, your ratings are up. Congratulations. Thank you, buddy. It's always nice to check. I like to see, even if they're friends, I like to see how are they doing? Are people listening, right? That's but right. You're, you're doing great. America at Night with Rich Valdez. All right, America, welcome back. And just an update on what's going on. Uh, on the 2024 front, uh, former President Donald Trump has qualified for the Republican presidential primary ballot in New Hampshire. And uh, we have a clip of audio on Trump uh, making that announcement. Uh, listen to this one. Cut number 27. I'll say a simple message. Vote for Trump and solve your problems. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Trump uh, always uh, making things very funny and succinct. Uh, succinct. It's one of the ways that uh, I think it makes him a very masterful marketer is that he's able to boil down uh, what could otherwise be a complicated message and bring it down to um, to something that makes uh, more sense. Uh, President Trump also mentioned um, his comments on the House of Representatives struggled to uh, select a new speaker. Listen to this. I said there's only one person that can do it all the way. You know who that is? Jesus Christ. <laughs> if Jesus came down and said, I want to be speaker, he would do it. Other than that, I haven't seen I haven't seen anybody that can guarantee it. But at some point, I think we're going to uh, 
going to have somebody pretty soon. And my hope is that we will, um, I, whether it's Byron Donalds or um, any of the other guys that that uh, had previously put themselves up for the job. I think it's great. Some of the others, um, I, I don't know them well enough to make a, to pass a judgment on that. So we'll see how that continues to play out. And I want to also uh, continue with your calls. <clears throat> and let's go to Debbie Canton, Ohio, WNIR. Debbie, go right ahead. You're on with Rich Valdez. Yes. Hi, Welcome. Rich. Good evening. Or good morning, I guess it should be. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, first of all, I just want to say um, uh, I've known a couple, well, quite a few good people. Uh, one one person that really mattered in my life and my son's life was a young man. I was young when I met him years ago from Iran. And he was my son's soccer coach. And he coached and mentored so many young boys in the soccer team. And he was awesome. And I know people like, oh, he's from Iran. Nope. He was wonderful. He loved America. And he was happy to be here. So, you know, I'm not going to hold anything against Iranians um, as a whole because I know they're not all uh, against America. You know, Debbie, that's a great point. And this was a point that, uh, matter of fact, I I went out, had to go to a wake earlier today. And I went with an old friend of mine, like my best friend. And um, we were grammar school buddies and um, we still live close to one another. And uh, we went to another mutual friend of ours, uh, his dad had passed away. And we were talking about that on the way home, uh, about this whole thing in Iran. And I was, he was like, oh, I met a guy from Iran. Same thing like you. He said, well, what a nice guy. And I said, I got to tell you, I've never met anybody from Iran that wasn't a nice guy, ever, ever in my life. Every Iranian I've ever met, uh, Persian, Iranian, uh, I've never met somebody who had, had nothing but uh, praise for the United States um, the more connected to Iran they were, the, the kinder they were. Uh, it, it's, I, I just never have met somebody from Iran that, that was, you know, somebody I would say, oh, I don't like this guy. Uh, it's actually quite the opposite. They were all wonderful people. And, and all of them have pretty much shared the same thing, especially those that lived a lot of their adult lives there. They all explained to me that Iran is filled with wonderful people. And it's literally just a handful of the regime that is holding down and oppressing the people. And, you know, one would think that that may not be possible, but it is. And I think we see the same thing. If you ever met anybody from uh, North Korea, um, same thing. Uh, and, and meet anybody from Cuba, same thing. I love the Cubans. I've never met a Cuban. I, I was like, ah, oh, this guy's um, unless they were part of the regime, unless they were, you know, sold out to, to help you know, if they were like Castroites, if you will. Um, but outside of that, um, everybody who's been critical of the regime and, and says that, you know, they don't like communism, they don't like Fidel or, or Diaz-Canel, the new president, or Raul Castro after uh, Fidel was, was gone. Uh, again, so many good people that are just held down by bad policies and people that are in fear and afraid to, to speak up because of the repercussions that they'll actually face, not what they might face, but they will face. And same thing with Iran. I, I've just never met anybody who was um, somebody I wouldn't say, what a great guy. All great people. Uh, several have been guests on this program in the past. And you raise an excellent point. Um, that, that's exactly how it is. And, and this is why I try not to pass judgment on people uh, to say, oh, well, you guys, and they didn't elect those people. But even where there are elections being held, 
I think it's always necessary to to look at people as individuals, try not to, to look at them as a whole or as a group because people are individuals. And the reality is sometimes people get caught in the crossfire, like me, right? A New Yorker or uh, f- from, from New Jersey, whichever way you want to look at it. Um, I, I vote for the best candidate I can each and every time. But yet, who's my U.S. Senator? Gold Bar Bob, right? Him and Cory Booker, who's a nice guy, by the way. Cory Booker, I don't agree with his politics, but a good man. Um, <clears throat> now, Gold Bar Bob, again, I wouldn't say he's a bad man. I would say he's done some bad things, perhaps, but that's that's how this works. And if anybody were to look at Gold Bar Bob and say, oh, the people in New Jersey, they're all like Gold Bar Bob. No, Bob Menendez represents us in the U.S. Senate, but I don't think he represents us as a whole. And by us, I mean those of us in New Jersey. So I, I think you, you bring up an excellent point, Debbie. Could I also mention something else? Um, sure. About yeah, the you got about 25 undocumented seconds. worker. Okay. How much? 25. Oh, I'm losing. All right. Okay. Well, quickly, I wanted to mention here in Ohio, I know for years, way back before Trump, anybody knew he was running. My sister was a lunch lady up in northwestern Ohio. She talked all the time about all the undocumented workers they had there, um, Spanish speaking. And so did my nephew had the same thing with his construction. So, you know, it's not a it's not a new thing. Okay. Oh, yeah, you're right. We've had an immigration problem for a long time. And I think Trump's probably the one that's been most effective in dealing with it, and Biden's making it even worse than it's ever been. Thank you, Debbie. Folks, we're coming right back. Your calls and more straight ahead. And wait till you hear what the president of Israel said. You're not going to believe it. I'm Rich Valdez. We do have some updates for you. Fox News has exclusively obtained and reviewed an Israeli interrogation video of a Hamas militant that crossed into southern Israel on October 7th and participated in the massacre of so many innocent civilians. I do need to warn our viewers, some of what I'm about to describe is extremely graphic. But this fighter telling the interrogator in the video, a man in his 20s, he's sitting in a white cloth jumpsuit, talks about the coordination and planning that went into the attack in southern Israel. He talks about using the app Telegram to communicate in real time and send videos of the massacre to other Hamas members in southern Israel. Additionally, he talks about how Jeeps were used along with trucks to enter the southern part of this country. Uh, We've seen the pickup trucks that were left behind by these militants. And they entered these communities just slaughtering people. I do want to talk, though, about what he explained to this interrogator regarding Islam. He acknowledges that in Islam, you are not supposed to kill women, children and the elderly, but says Hamas commanders ordered these individuals to do just that, telling people to step on the heads of Israelis, behead them and cut their feet. These graphic descriptions of what the militants did just give you some idea of the the plans and the executions that took place in southern Israel just two weeks ago. That's uh, Trey Yanks, Fox News Channel reporter, and uh, shocking, right? Shocking stuff that we're hearing. And this is, um, again, this is why I've been so uh, against what we, every time somebody says no, but because they took their land. And uh, listen, you, you just don't do that. 
that's not the way to do this. Uh, and anybody who believes that that's okay because they've reached their point, at some point people explode. Yes, at some point people explode. And you go and you try to kill the president, you try to kill a general, and you try to kill another soldier, and you go man to man. You don't do this. You don't go after grandmas. The people released today are literally octogenarians. I mean, absolutely disgusting, uh, the stuff that we're seeing come from this war. Uh, and Israeli President Isaac Herzog he told Sky News that a USB drive was found on the body of a dead Hamas terrorist with instructions on how to make chemical weapons. So it's not just the, the terrorism that we've seen thus far, but there was more plans for chemical weapons. Listen to this. This is material which was found on the body of one of those sadistic villains. It's Al-Qaeda material, official Al-Qaeda material. We're dealing with ISIS, Al-Qaeda, and Hamas. This is what we're dealing with. And in, those, in, and in this material, there were instructions how to produce chemical weapons. This is, it speaks about uh, 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 arson, and it speaks uh, uh, about uh, uh, various chemicals uh, that uh, come out and produce chemical weapons. Simple as that. So that's, uh, again, Isaac Herzog, uh, president of Israel, uh, talking about how Hamas terrorists were found carrying instructions for a cyanide-based chemical weapon. Uh, listen to this. The directions included a detailed uh, diagram for a cyanide dispersion device, and they were stored on USB drives found on the bodies of Hamas operatives who massacred uh, Kibbutz Be'eri, according to uh, Israeli intelligence and uh, reported by Axios. The quote from the article here says, this finding points to an intention by Hamas to use chemical weapons as part of its terror attack against civilians. Very, very disturbing, very distressing, uh, but this is exactly what we hear when you have the confession of the Hamas fighter. And yes, I'm grateful that they're letting go uh, the two Americans they let go and now the two Israeli citizens, uh, both elderly, but come on, you took hostages. These aren't prisoners of war. It's not like you took another soldier. You're taking actual people, civilians. Not cool. It's even worse, civilians that have special needs, right? Uh, somebody that's elderly clearly has needs that are superior to mine. And I just, I think of that and I think, my goodness. I mean, is anybody safe? I don't know. Uh, but... Let's go to Sarah, Bedford, Indiana, WBIW. Sarah, you're on with Rich Valdez. Welcome. Oh, great to talk to you. I wanted to say, you know, I'm not immune to the plight of the Palestinian people. I understand that they were displaced in the founding of the state of Israel. But if you're going to elect people as their quote-unquote freedom fighters, and then you allow them and support them when they butcher children and rape women and commit horrible atrocities, I mean, go out of their way to do it, not just an isolated event then you bear responsibility for that, and you can't expect the world to be sympathetic. Now, other conflicts, you know, like mm -hmm. in Northern Ireland, uh, you know, you had the IRA fighting the loyalists, and both sides, there were innocent people killed, and there were things that were done wrong. But by and large, compared to the way Hamas has been fighting, uh, in Northern Ireland, they, they fought a much cleaner war and tried to um, have a code of conduct that both sides would respect. Um, and there's a lot of separatist groups that fight a much more civil war. So... I mean, Palestinians want to have people support, you know, they can't let their fighters murder children and commit horrible atrocities, you know? 100 percent, Sarah. I mean, this is I agree with that point. 
and it's what I've been echoing. I think, and, and I'll keep echoing it. Every, if every day goes by and I, he, I keep bumping into people or people texting me, calling me, sending me messages, telling me, but Rich, they're whatever. Listen to me. Listen, everybody who can hear me, please. I make the same point you're making. I will echo that and say, a war is a war. And there, and I'm not condoning, but I'm saying I understand that there may be collateral damage, right? If you're in a neighborhood with high crime, there's a chance that if your kid's playing at the playground and there's a drive-by shooting amongst rival drug gangs, that your kid can get shot. There's a chance that the bad guys will shoot at the cops and the cops will shoot back, and one of them might end up hitting an innocent bystander, right? Those are that's called collateral damage. It's not okay. I don't think it's good, uh, but they're not even at war with the right authority. They're not at war with the IDF. They attacked civilians. This isn't collateral damage. This is literally a war on private citizens. That isn't cool. If an, and if an old woman is killed as a result of the war, and I don't mean the result of her being attacked and kidnapped and raped or whatever, I'm talking about, you know, she got caught in a crossfire. That's incredibly unfortunate. However, it's explicable, right? You can understand that that may happen in a war. What I don't understand is how the war is literally against her, against these women. One woman, I think, was 79 years old of the two that they freed today. They went and stole old women. They kidnapped them. That is absolutely insane, Sarah. Great point. Way more eloquent than me and with a lot less emotion because this stuff really gets me angry. I can't help but think, you know, my dad was 80 years old when he passed away. My mom was an oxygen-dependent person that, that had a, a pulmonary disease. And I think, my God, how, how would anybody dare go after old people or a six-month-old baby who's, you know, uh, completely innocent? It just atrocious. I, I, I will not believe uh, for a second, at least I don't until I see proof otherwise, that the IDF or Israelis or any other army out there is intentionally targeting civilian targets. Uh, I'm sure that's happened in the past, not with the Israelis per se, but I'm saying I'm sure that there have been war crimes committed against somebody somewhere, and I get that. And and again, I don't condone it, but uh, I understand you might have an overzealous brigade, an overzealous commander, an overzealous soldier that may go f- too far. Understood, and I, I think every army irrespective of what country they come from, if they saw something like that, they'd call it out and they wouldn't condone it. But here, it's not that they're, this is the exception. It's the rule. This is the, the constant is to go after the uh, private citizens, to go after the, in my opinion, the innocent, right? An innocent civilian whose only you know, fault is that they were there when these terrorists came by. Absolutely not cool. Uh, Sarah, I agree with you. Great point. All right, Sarah, thank you. Big shout out to WBIW in Bedford, Indiana. Uh, let's, let's, uh, but before, I don't want to cut anybody off and we've got to take a quick pause. So we'll take a pause here. We'll come back. Your calls and more coming straight up. Albany, New York, Clinton, Illinois, Dothan, Alabama, Evergreen, Montana, and more coming in. 833-482-5337, 833-4-VALDEZ. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. Call now, 833-4-VALDEZ. That's 833-482-5337. 833-4-VALDEZ. That's Valdez with an S. 
Mr. Call Screener, who is a budding radio star, by the way. Richie Valdez is terrific. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. That was the voice of the great one, Mark Levin, someone I call a friend uh, who's been a mentor to me over the years. And uh, I have a clip of audio from him that I want to play uh, because it's something he's been calling for, honestly, for 15 years or more. He's been saying that uh, we went to war with the wrong country after 9-11, and we'll play that in a little bit uh, because I agree with that statement. Uh, But there's a uh, report in the New York Post today. The New York Times admitted that it relied uh, relied too heavily on Hamas's claims in Gaza over the hospital attack coverage that they provided. And, uh, yeah, it's great after the fact, after, you know, they set social media ablaze uh, with respect to thinking that the Israelis had bombed the hospital. Well, it was, in fact, their fellow terrorists from Islamic Jihad. And, you know, this was taken all over the place. And I think um, Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib has uh, still has a post on her social media timeline, at least as of the last time I checked, where she was indicating as such, well, we now know that this is not true, right? It, it's false, uh, but we know what, what the story is. And it's a shame. Uh, it's a shame that the media does this. They can say what they want, burn everything down, and then after the fact, on page 14 at the bottom of the page, it'll have a small retraction saying, yeah, yeah, my bad, uh, we messed up, or, you know, blah, 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 you know, upon further review, et cetera, et cetera. And it's just not cool. Now, uh, the New York Times issued the statement Monday, five days after running a headline on its front page. I saw that headline uh, and it was crazy. It was crazy. It was the way they wrote that. And we talked about it on the show. Uh, above the fold reading Israeli strike kills hundreds in hospital, comma, Palestinians say. That was irresponsible reporting. And listen, there's no excuse for something like that. You don't just say, oh, you know, I heard from Biden that he's terrific and Bidenomics is great. No. Your job as the watchdog of, of, uh, of our government, uh, as members of the media, is to, to question things and, and call it out when it's wrong. Anyway, the initial New York Times report claimed 500 people were killed in the attack, citing uh, the Hamas officials' statement on this, and it included a picture of a wrecked building that was not the actual hospital. How about that? It's kind of like when they said uh, Trump's got kids in cages. Meanwhile, the cages they showed the picture of, and I think that was the New York Times as well, was actually detention facilities uh, designed and built under the Obama administration where they had aluminum foil blankets and they were in chain linked uh, crates, if you will. That's how they were housing people. Absolutely crazy to blame Trump for that. Meanwhile, Trump had uh, instituted a whole different type of uh detention facility where, you know, there were bedrooms and whatnot. Again, just another perfect example of how the media gets gets it wrong and not only gets it wrong, I'd say maliciously just lies to people to disinform them. Let's go to o- Otis, Morgantown, Kentucky, WKCT. Go right ahead. You're on with Rich Valdez. Welcome. Oh, hello, Rich. Uh, good evening. Uh, I'm glad to, uh, you're doing a fine job on it today. Uh, and, uh, just uh, been an anniversary. Uh, uh, telling Thank your you, uh, call screener, um, Friday evening on BBC America, this reporter went in with the Israeli troops and they found 15 children that were wired together and burned up there by the border. Wow. That's so sad. I know all kinds. Of, I know I, I, don't, I hadn't heard it nowhere else, not on Fox or anything. 
which I don't listen to any other, and I don't really put a lot of stock in BBC America, but you know what I mean, Rich. Yeah, no, I, I listen, I get you. And, you know, what's scary about that, Otis, is thank God you know what's going on. You listen to other sources of information. I often tell people, look, if you don't like the news and the media, you could listen to my show and I'll talk about it. And I try to be as objective as I can be, but I've got a lot of biases and I give my opinion on things. And that's my job uh, as an opinion commentator. However, <clears throat> the the outright lies uh, of of the media, right, where people are led to believe if you're a mom, a mom of children, a working mom, and you go to work every day and you wake up early, maybe you go to the gym, maybe you, you have you know a busy life, you're raising kids, you're doing things, or a dad and you've got a very demanding job and you're in the car for a half hour a day where you listen to either a little music or a little mix of news and music and you try to find out what's going on in the world that you're raising your children in and uh, or just trying to survive in. And you hear a report you know, from the New York Times saying that the Israelis blew up a hospital that killed hundreds of people. And the source of your report is the other team, as Biden would say, right? The other team did it. Uh, you know, Hamas, this, you know, known in America as a terrorist organization, that's your credible source. You're the New York Times. You should be ashamed of yourself, right? The gray lady should be ashamed. I think it's absolutely horrible. And I agree with you. I don't put a lot of stock in the BBC or anybody, honestly. You have to you work your contacts and figure out what's true and what's not and, you know, have enough contacts and enough um, sources and places to try to get to the truth. But th that's what I do is this is my full time living. I just imagine people that are, you know, changing motor oil, people that are cleaning offices, people that are uh, serving food, preparing food, people that are working in dental offices and medical offices or working in, in any capacity where they have a job and a responsibility. Not everybody can stay abreast of what's going on in the news. And I've always known that. And I think that's why talk radio is a popular thing, why podcasts are a popular thing. People get to check in a little bit later and see what's going on, but they may not always have an hour or two, uh, like you know, a radio program might be, or three in the case of this program. So they want something quick and punchy and succinct to give them the news. And the um, the left has been very good at creating those types of uh, narratives for people. And it's it's so unfortunate, Otis, that you, you saw that report because it was a horrible report. And I've seen some of the photos attached to that same incident you're talking about that um, Prime Minister Netanyahu put out on social media. And it was shocking. And uh, Godspeed to all of them that are enduring this conflict. And Otis, thank you for your call. I appreciate it. Great to hear from you more from you all, America. We've got calls from uh, New York, Illinois, Alabama, and Montana coming up straight ahead. I'm Rich Valdez. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. All right, it's the speed round. Make it quick and make it count. Let's go to Andrew Clinton, Illinois, WHOW. Go right ahead. Good evening again, Mr. Valdez. And I agree that New York Slimes is terrible and we should demand better from our media. But I just wanted to get your take quickly on, I listened to another uh, conservative talk show host who often makes a distinguish, uh, the, distinct, the distinction between um, the American liberals and the left and how liberals are actually not bad people, but it's tragic that the left has actually 
kind of hijacked their beliefs and their ideas. And there's a distinction between liberals and the left. Oh, for sure. Yeah, I agree. Listen, uh, on this program, I've invited leftists in the past and, and they've not accepted. I have had uh, some success with getting liberal Democrats on. Uh, we had Alan Dershowitz on recently. He's a very liberal Democrat. He hates Trump, even though he defended Trump in his impeachment. Um, and he's a clear example of, uh, of a liberal. His policies and his politics are liberal, uh, but he doesn't subscribe to Marxism or anything that the the far radical left. And there is there really is no moderate uh, left. Right. It, 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 it is what it is. And there is quite a distinction. And when you get people that are calling for the destruction of police, uh, the destruction of uh, the United States as we know it, trying to create something new out of the American experiment. Um, voila. There you have the left. Great point. Interesting distinction. Uh, let's go over here to Sandra Dothan, Alabama, WDBT, very quickly. Uh, yes, Elvis did a song called Suspicious Minds, and the first line in it says, we're caught in a trap. I think the United States is caught in a trap. Today they announced about the Philippines, uh, China hit one of their boats or whatever. So oh, yeah. anyway, we're spread thin, but I want, yeah, I want to ask you a question. Is Do you really think, the prime minister will cross into Gaza. And why I is- do, Sandra. I think that they will eventually. They're just trying to protect the lives of the hostages and they're trying to play it the best way they can. Hasta la proxima. Take care. God bless and good night. I'm Rich Valdez. Every story eventually comes to an end. This June, hear the final episode of season two of the hit podcast series In the Red Clay, Durham. In the Red Clay tells the unbelievable true story of Billy Sunday Burt, the most dangerous man in Georgia history. In the podcast that people are calling riveting, incredibly moving, captivating, and addicting. Binge seasons one and two of In the Red Clay now, wherever you listen.